the media has taken for granted that the people who watch and listen to them have forgotten how to logically reason, but in many cases it's not. And the media for so long, entertainment and music and theater and movies and, and mass media has assumed that people can't reason and that we're a bunch of sheep and that we just follow along whatever statistics and whatever arguments they make and whatever flavor of the day we accept. How can we reach higher levels of meaning and purpose in our lives? What is true freedom? And when we find it, can we use it to transform the world's suffering and despair? In this episode, co-founder and president of Healing the Culture, Camille Pauly, reveals the different levels of happiness and love that exist beyond our basic understanding, and shares how we can live out our Christianity in a way that transforms the culture. There's enough going on now where people aren't silently saying, well, it's just this one instance. I think I'll go ahead and design this because that's my job. It's people looking around at what everyone else is doing and saying, I'm not part of this anymore. I'm leaving. I'm walking. You know, I'm going to live out my Christian faith the way Christ did when he got on a cross for it rather than, you know, buckle and succumb to what the, the day wanted them to do. I want you to see the goodness of God in the midst of your suffering and how he opens the door to a new interpretation of quality of life, a different view of success, views that show you that real meaning comes from your ability to impart wisdom to younger generations, to give forgiveness to family members that you've had grudges against for years and years. When we use reason and faith, we discover our true mission and we allow God to provide the strength, love, and supernatural desire we need to bring the world closer to salvation. This is Living the Call. Camille Pauly, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Deacon. It's wonderful to have you. We were joking about it earlier, but you kind of you're helping me complete my tour of the United States with your That's presence right. from South Dakota. <laughs> well, nine months ago that wouldn't have been the case, but we moved last year in the midst of all this chaos from Seattle. Um, still got a lot of good friends there, but now in Rapid City, South Dakota, and loving it. For those who don't know South Dakota, I mean, I have images in my mind of what South Dakota can look like, and I get this kind of uh, instant sense of kind of frontier and just beautiful kind of mountainous areas, but how mm -hmm. far am I from reality? Well, not too far from reality. It depends on what side of the state you're on. Where, uh, If you're on the east side of the state, it's a little flatter. It's a lot hotter in the summer, a lot colder in the winter. But here we do have the Black Hills. They're beautiful mountains, some plains, lots of green trees, um, and uh, beautiful, amazing, crazy weather. If you don't like the weather here, you wait half an hour, and it's completely different. <laughs> and you're going to be happy. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of Florida. Just, you know, give it, give it about four minutes, and it'll, uh, it'll change it. Um, it yep. the, the work... Uh, Camille, the work that you do, first of all, and we're going to talk about a variety of things, I'm sure, but I'm just thinking about especially the move that you've made in the midst of COVID, the, the work that you do and how involved you are in, in the pro-life movement. Has that, how has that changed for you in COVID? Like, what, what's the implication of the last couple of years for you, um, you know, given the work that you've been doing historically? We've had to be a lot more vocal and we've had to be a lot more uh, clever in our marketing because COVID has taken over people's brains. Um, it's really saturated all of the airwaves and um, just people's thoughts. Mm. And so we've we've had to be a lot louder, a lot more apparent, a lot more visual than we've been before, which is hard to do because the pro-life movement is pretty visual and pretty loud. But sure. um, 
but it's it's really uh, it's really been difficult to break through the chaos and the noise of that COVID has caused. So that's one thing we've changed. One way we've changed. Mm. I think there's also been a lot of urgency, a lot more urgency among pro-lifers on this issue, because uh, because they think that the issue is being forgotten. And Dobbs, the Dobbs case, um, you know, sure. recently has really helped to reinvigorate the movement and give people a lot more. Um, airtime, if you will. Um, so, and, and I think aside from that, for me, it's really clarified at Healing the Culture what our mission is all about, that the whole rise of kind of the communist movement, if you will, in the midst of this COVID issue has come about because people didn't have the principles in place in their own lives, Catholics, mm. Christians, um, and regular, of goodwill. You know, genuine sure. good people of goodwill have not had the solid principles in place that would lead them to contradict and to easily counter communism and the the atheistic thoughts coming out of the kind of the the COVID um, leadership, if you will. And so, well, in the, uh, yeah, yeah, in the, in the absence of that kind of you know principled formation, you know, you're kind of you know, St. Paul would say, uh, I think it was St. Paul tossed to and fro, right, with all these different, um, you know, teachings and, and perspectives and points of view, because you're kind of not yeah. grounded on anything. So ultimately, I guess, if it sounds like a compelling case, then I'll go in that direction. I definitely right. see that in the in the in the case of COVID with, you know, the, the, the kind of whiplash of certain things, hearing certain things, believing other things, and how, how that evolves as we learn more about you know, that, that illness and that situation, but it's kind of like hardened, right, into these kind of positions and points of view that are grounded, not necessarily in something beyond whatever just the information is that we're, that we're hearing. Yeah, I, well, and I think that the, the media has taken for granted that the people who watch and listen to them have forgotten how to logically reason. Mm. And in some cases that's true, but in many cases it's not. And the media for so long, entertainment and music and theater and movies and and mass media has assumed that people can't reason and that we're a bunch of sheep and that we just follow along whatever statistics and whatever arguments they make and whatever flavor of the day we accept. And that's not true. And you can see that happening. And, uh, you know, the pro-life movement has always been against the grain. And you see that coming out more and more as people realize that a lot of the COVID policies are illogical, don't make any sense, unethical, unjust, <laughs> irrational, <Absolutely. laughs> contradictory. <laughs> and I, I think this is a great time for the, a movement of people who insist that we need a culture of logic and reason. And that's what, that's, you know, uniquely our, one of the things we do at Healing the Culture is insist on a rational and logical dialogue on the abortion issue. So this is partly our issue too, you know, what's, what's going on in the culture today. Do you think that in a way that, that, you know, folks who may find themselves in that kind of food group, let's say that, that, that regard the population as folks that need to be led, but that maybe can't necessarily come to their own conclusions without a significant amount of like help. Is, is that a byproduct of a lack of um, kind of understanding anthropologically what who people are like is is it is it a byproduct of the value that that those folks may have of other people are are these things related in a way to maybe looking at the life issue as like hey you know let's avoid some let's let's have them avoid any pain and therefore that's why we're for abortion you see what I'm saying like is there a is there is there the a logical connection there yeah very much a connection and I think you're hitting on something critical here. 
when you view human beings as nothing different than an animal, when you see a human being as a beast or a conglomeration of cells bouncing off of each other, logic isn't going to have any real substance behind it. There isn't a real God behind it who has Ooh. ordained us as logical, rational creatures. And so instead, we follow our instincts, we follow our impulses, we follow our emotions and our physical desires. And so anything that's logical is just... It's just a, a residual of those things. It's it, it doesn't have a reality in and of itself. So you want to make a contradiction? Go ahead. Who's stopping you? Right. Um, you want to define things however you want to define them? Go ahead. Why not? That's the flavor of the day. You want girls to be boys and boys to be girls? That's fine. What's wrong with that? There is no objective definition. There is no principle of non-contradiction. There is no principle of the definition of the human person based on solid, identifiable, verifiable, publicly accessible information, right? These things don't matter. And so I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, this, this all is coming from the initial degradation of the human person as not made in God's image, who mm. is a rational being in and of himself, the rational being, um, but rather we're just climbing out of the muck. And so logical principles, you know, be darned, if you will. <laughs> they don't matter and they haven't mattered to the elite for a very long time. I can tell in just the way that you frame this discussion, the many, many years you've had of philosophical inquiry with the background that you had with Father Spitzer, because I can definitely see it coming out here. And <laughs> and that principle of, you know, of non-contradiction is really interesting because, you know, you, you phrase it to me when we first connected as, you know, things can't be and not be at the same time. But in a way, we're dealing, at least in, in an American context, in a popular culture that supports that very same premise, which is like, actually, you can kind of be and or not be whatever you want, and it's really up to me. Yeah, all the time. Father Robert Spitzer, of course, is our founder at Healing the Culture. He wrote the book called Healing the Culture, and he's my boss and a very good friend. We've been working together for almost 30 years now. And he, he when he talks about this principle of non-contradiction, you know, he does it in the sense that you 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 have a culture now that really does believe something can be and not be at the same time, depending on who's looking at it. And it's not just in the abortion scenario, but in abortion, it's it's an obvious one, right? It's it's a baby if you want it to be, it's a human being if you want it to be, or it's a person if you want it to be, depending on who you are, what your desires are, what you want it to be. And this has got us into all kinds of trouble. And you can see the slippery slope. If you can define a human being however you want then you can define sexuality however you want. And if you can define that in any way you want, then you can define marriage in any way you want, which came mm. next. And mm. if you can define marriage any way you want, then you can define gender any way you want. And that is where we are today. And that is just a great, I think this is one of the greatest um, uh, conquests, if you will, of Satan is not just to erase the image and likeness of God, to have us erase that, but to have erase have us erase our own sex, our own mm. sexual identity. Because when you do that, you erase the very tool through which God allows us to act in the image of himself through our maleness and our femaleness. Amen. And he's, you know, he's really, he, he, he's very patient. Satan is very patient and has weaved this into our culture. So now it's a very natural ending right now. Um, where will it go next? I don't know, but it's a very natural ending to where we started, which is contradictions don't matter. You can define things however you want. It is what it is, depending on who you are and what you believe. 
And I was going to ask you about sort of the implications of that progression, right? Because you can naturally say, okay, well, we've gotten this far where now we're really, um, you know, it, it's a it's a subjective criteria whether or not um, I have a particular sex. You know, at, at least at, right now at this moment, it seems that even people perhaps who hold that worldview most of them seem to limit the limit it at well, there's sex and then there's there's gender and those things are different. But you can see eventually that even the biological premise of sex could be something that could be you know put up for debate, right? Like that that seems to be like maybe the next part where it's like, no, I know you're a biological male, but still you're a female, right? So like at, at least at this point, there seems to be some rationale that says, well, these things are different, which, you know, you and I would look at and say, actually, they're not. But nevertheless, like the next step might be that or, or something else. Yeah. The good news is that the vast majority of people do not buy this in their, you know, they, they ride along because they don't want to make waves, because they're afraid of losing their job, because they don't want to have their house burned down. They're afraid, but the vast majority of people know this doesn't work. You're male or mm. you're female, you're a boy or you're a girl, you're doing extreme damage to people and especially to children. Most people know that because we're rational beings and they can't, they can, they can damage that gift, but they can't completely destroy it. And so I, you know, there's a, there's a good news, bad news here. The bad news is it's doing a lot of destruction to a lot of innocent people and especially sure. a lot of children and minors who are making mistakes that they're not aware of and that they won't be able to undo by, mm. you know, undergoing gender therapy and gender transitions and surgeries that they cannot undo um, and, and being attacked physically by these hormones that will do damage that they cannot undo when they become infertile. Um, and years from now, they will be depressed and, it, you know, it will be difficult to overcome that. Um, so, so yes, a lot of damage is being done. But the good news is that it's all boiling out right now. Yeah. Where you can see what's been undercover for so long and hiding and sneaking around in the shadows and affecting people in secret, secret ways. It's all out in the open now. Mm. And rational people are looking at this and saying, my God, what have we done? I need to speak out. I have to do something about this. I've got to train up my children. I need to know what they're learning in schools. Look at the rise of the parents movement, right? <laughs> I, I want to know what's happening in my schools because my kids are coming home telling me they think he thinks she's, he's a girl and she thinks she's a boy and, and all this other garbage going on. And, and lest anybody think that that rise of the parents is, is um, uh, necessarily a political phenomenon, it really isn't. I mean, we just had the case no. last week in San Francisco, one of the you know bluest and most progressive places in, in the nation that had basically a rebellion against the school board among those parents saying like, you know, maybe their motivations were different, but nevertheless, it was parents really reclaiming that yes. role of being the best stewards yes. of their children. Yes. And we have people re reclaiming their jobs, too. This, this goes to employees and jobs as well. You know, it's not just people walking out of their jobs because they don't want to be vaccinated by a vaccine that is unproven, untested, and doesn't seem to be doing much good. But it's also just recently, even here in South Dakota, right, one of your most conservative states in the entire country, um, I was talking with a young woman the, over the weekend who said that she had to leave her job in a print shop in, here in South Dakota because she was being required to um, design a graphic image for three men who want to get married. And mm. so, <laughs> a so you, you know, yeah. And she, she, so she's leaving, she's taking, 
you know, she's, she's taking her morality and she's mm-hmm. walking out the door and saying, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this. And there's enough going on now where people aren't silently saying, well, it's just this one instance. I think I'll go ahead and design this because that's my job. It's people looking around at what everyone else is doing and saying, I'm not part of this anymore. I'm that's leaving. Right. I'm walking. You know, I'm going to live out my Christian faith the way Christ did when he got on a cross for it rather than, you know, buckle and succumb to what the, the day wanted them to do. And I think that's the good that's coming out of this. There's going to be an awful lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of victims. But there's also going to be, I think, a new uprising of goodness and Christianity through this. Well, and as good Christians, we always have to remember to be hopeful and to fear only God, right? Because we're told that Mm -hmm. repeatedly. What role, Camille, does um, the kind of positive aspects of the argument have to play? In other words, it's true that we are or are not male or female. It is true that we are either pregnant or not. Um, All those things are true, but what role does the the kind of... um, the other side of this argument, and maybe other side is the wrong way to put it, but the notion that there is deep, profound beauty and good in those things. In other words, the, the, like the academic or maybe the biological kind of notion is clear, clear to establish, but you might even have people who understand that, believe it, you know, accept it at an intellectual level, and nevertheless persist in these kind of um, you know, notions. And I, and I just wonder, either in your life or in your work, how much this is like, hey, this is a beautiful thing that you're a woman. Right. There's a female yeah. genius. There's a beautiful thing that you're pregnant. Yes. There's a beautiful thing that there's a child. Like, how much of that plays a role in this? Now you're touching on exactly what we do at <laughs> Healing the Culture. Now you're touching on what makes us very different from other pro-life organizations. For the longest time in our movement, you know, we have wonderful people doing great work in in you know, post-abortion ministry, uh, pre-abortion counseling, sidewalk ministry, fetal development work, political work, you know, all of this wonderful work. But nobody was supporting these people with the Mm. philosophical work we needed to do and educating in, in their hearts and minds about who we are as a human person. And that's what healing the culture does. We fill that niche where we're showing people, look, let's take a look once you realize you cannot make a contradiction. That is illogical, irrational, and you can't have relationships or laws or rules or community if you make contradictions contradictions, then what is it? Is it a baby or isn't it? Is it a human being or isn't it? And there's this whole beautiful philosophy of the human person that blows the door open for people to, most of them for the first time, recognize there's a reality here that I was never told about before. For Mm. example, how do you know if you're a human being or not? Well, there's this beautiful little principle called the principle of complete explanation, Hmm. which goes all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, right? 2,400 years ago that teaches us that if you really want to know what something is, you can't just define it based on its appearances. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? How does it make me feel, right? Those are all what we call accidentals to the thing. If you really want to know what it is, you need a complete definition, which allows the thing to reveal everything about itself that it can, including not just its accidentals, but also what are its powers? What could it be capable of performing in the future if allowed Mm. to reach its highest powers, its highest Mm. potential? And what will fulfill it, right? What is its final goal, its ultimate goal? And so if you're defining a human person, you cannot just look at us biologically. A human being is a, is a physically manifest being with arms and legs and a certain IQ who has certain athletic abilities, et cetera, et cetera. That's arbitrary and subjective. And that's always going to depend on somebody else setting the standard who's stronger and bigger and smarter than you are, right? Yeah. What you have to look at is what are the powers of the human person? 
We have this amazing, unique capacity to seek more than just physical pleasure and material goods, what Father Spitzer calls happiness level one, to seek more than just ego gratification and power and success and achievement and winning, what he calls happiness level two. But we have this unique ability above the entire animal kingdom, everything else on earth, to seek level three, which is the good for the other, truth and justice and mm. goodness, right? And, and home and community and peacemaking. And more than that, we have the, the ability to seek those things infinitely and absolutely and perfectly, what we call the transcendent, right? We desire level four, which is the search for God. And that is a whole definition of the human person. Any being of human origin, any being with a human DNA, yes, you have to include the biology. That's part of who we are. Of course. Any being with a human DNA that has the power, if given the opportunity to reach its highest potential, has the power to achieve the goodness of the love of God and therefore loving other human beings and other beings, that's a human person. That's what defines us. Now you have a completely different definition of love a completely different definition of what the successful life is all about, what quality of life is, what gives life its quality, what really sets me free. All these words change now to a much more uh, a fuller, more complete, more whole and more beautiful vision of those words. And even words like, you know, not just what is love, but what is a human person and what are human rights? All those words now get filled out in very deep ways. And that's what turns people on. That's the positivity of the pro-life message. It gives them meaning, really. Yes. I, I've heard Father Spitzer actually give that talk on the levels of happiness, and it's super fascinating. And here, here's yeah. where the language of the church, you know, were it up to me, I'd love to just press that button and give people these, you know, the, the opportunity <laughs> to, to experience some of these things. But the language of the church about fullness, right? You, you, you hear that you know, we have it in in the area of indulgences, right? Partial versus plenary. We have it in the question of sacraments, right? Holy orders is an example. The Episcopal ordination is the fullness of holy orders. This idea of, um, which is imminently hierarchical, if you think about it, right? This idea of potential. We always have the next thing to go that, to, to achieve that great fullness until we're reunited with God in the beatific vision. But you can also see why that kind of thought process, thinking, framework, whatever you want to call it, is in some cases diametrically opposed to what we're seeing today, where the notion of even hierarchical thinking, the notion that there is a fuller to get to, can, can run afoul of how people perceive the world to be or, the, or how the world should be, right? That's a great, great observation, Deacon. And I, I love those examples you gave. And I'll give another one, right? Dating is nice, but it's not as good as marriage. Mm. It's not as full as marriage. You're missing something. And this is the whole message of the Catholic Church. Sin always has an element of good in it. The problem is it's not good enough. It isn't full. Oh, I love it's that. not using all of you. It's not using yeah. all of your potential and your powers. And usually what sin is doing is it's living for one of those lower levels of meaning and purpose in life at the expense of a higher level of meaning and purpose. Now that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the chocolate bar, you know, and say, yum, that was good. I simply enjoyed the chocolate bar. Did I have to make a spiritual experience out of it? No, the chocolate bar was good. But if you're enjoying the chocolate bar at the expense of a higher level, I'm eating so much chocolate that I can't compete and use my level two abilities anymore. And I no longer enter into community with other people. In fact, I'm trying to steal their chocolate bars and ruling relationships. And I'm now violating my relationship with God by offending him, by breaking his commandments. 
commandments, thou shalt not steal and mm. not entering into a communion of love with him. That's when eating the chocolate bar becomes bad. So here's the key. The key to our message is most people kind of instinctively know, and I've been doing this for 30 years. I've taught this to millions of people um, over 30 years, young and old, even down to kindergartners, uh, even as old as people in their 80s and 90s who haven't really ever heard this before. And er almost everyone you talk to already has this, we have this kind of God-shaped hole in our hearts where they already kind of intuitively know that surrender to God and gift of myself to the other is better than living for myself on materialism and ego gratification. It's better for me. It leaves me happier. It's better for others. It's better for my friends and my community. It's better for the world. But we're so saturated and inundated with messages that I will not be happy unless I live for myself, mm. that there's this fear to take that jump. There's the fear mm. to take the leap. And when they hear us talking about this and ordering these levels of happiness and giving the whole menu, acknowledging that level one and two are good, these are not bad things, but they're not enough. Let me show you what they're meant for. And then they see that levels one and two are means to the end of level three and four, that all your material gifts and your ego gifts are meant to be used at the service of the other and God for real happiness. It's almost like this light bulb turns on and they're like, this is what's been missing in the dialogue. It's not that the Catholic church is against these lower things. It's that the Catholic church wants you to reach your peak. Absolutely. It wants you to be the fullest that you are. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the examples you were, you were portraying. It also gives you a little bit of a window into the strategy of the enemy, right? In the sense that, you know, we forget, at least I do, that when we talk about the devil or demons, that, you know, these are people too. They're people in the sense that they have, you know, reason, intellect, and will, even though they're a different species, right? But, and the fact that they strategize and they think and all this stuff. So the idea that there is some good, but it's not good enough in some of these things, you can see how um, the enemy of our souls would use that, right, to his advantage, because things, you know, feel good, seem good, look good, even though at their essence, they aren't good or aren't full, the, the fullness of what, what good you're called to, it really shows you, you know, how that can be used and deformed and kind of levered to lead to an outcome that isn't good for our souls. Yeah, take take a look at two really good examples in the pro-life movement in particular. The first one would be on the, the question of freedom. What is freedom? How do you define freedom? It all depends on which of those four levels you are living for as your ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And every human being is going to choose one of those levels. Subconsciously or consciously, you're going to be living for one of those levels as your predominant, and that's going to be how you're operating. If you're living for level one or two, that the meaning of life and what brings me happiness and fulfillment is material pleasure and physical pleasure, that's level one, or ego gratification, success and power and esteem, that's level two, then you're going to view freedom as having all my options open before me all the time and being able to choose any of them whenever I want, regardless of the cost to you or to others. Mm. Because when you close an option, you close off an opportunity for me to find fulfillment through physical pleasure or ego gratification. that's all there is. That's all there is. Yeah. Exactly. So freedom is just seen as choice, right? And that's where you get the pro-choice movement because that is their God. Without choice, they don't have the sacrament they live, they need to live out the fullness of level one and level two meaning in life. Wow. And that is to be pitied. 
And because what's, what they're missing is the fullness of what it means to be a human person, which is in level three and four, you're going to view freedom very differently. Yes, you do need to have some options before you in order to choose any of them. And God tells us in Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death, right? Mm-hmm. But then he tells us what to do with that choice, right? Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. And that's what freedom for does. The opposite for, from freedom from, right? Freedom from responsibility, freedom from constraints, freedom from obligations or rules, leaving all my options open is freedom for, which says you have some options before you, but choosing some of them are deadly. Mm. And the culture and society and laws should lead us away from the deadly choices because they won't lead you to your proper end, which is love and goodness and beauty and truth and faith and surrender to God. And so true freedom in level three, four is freedom are the conditions that are, what makes me free are the conditions that are necessary for me to achieve my higher purpose. Those Mm. are the things that set me free. True freedom is the ability to choose the good beyond myself. That's freedom. On some level, you can see that framework impacting every virtue, right? I think of love. I often find myself, I I work a lot with, you know, people who are, let's say, either very early or haven't yet started their their kind of faith walk. They all have that yearning, to your point, right? St. Paul tells us in Romans that even the people who are not believers, they they know in in their natural hearts the things that they should do and, 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 and that kind of thing. And that's definitely true. But I find myself discussing a lot with people the idea of love and what love is and 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 it's another one of these dynamics where it's not that love isn't or can't include great feelings isn't or doesn't include some sense of physical attraction isn't or doesn't include some sense of like relationship or just feeling like hey i've got somebody who watches my back that's yeah it contains those things but the fuller expression of love is this desire to want something good for the other person, right? The desire to sacrifice for that person. Like, so you could kind of see this, maybe all the virtues, right? In a way is that depending on the frame that you're in, that level one, two, three, four, you're going to view these things that are maybe objectively good, right? Choice versus slavery or whatever, love versus hatred. Yeah, sure. But it's your understanding of what that virtue is, is impacted by the frame that you're approaching that discussion in. Exactly true. And that was the other example I was going to use, particularly when you're looking at physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. So just as there are four different ways to define happiness, there are four different ways to define love in that context, right? Love on level one would be, you love me when you make me feel good. Give me stuff and make me feel good. And you don't love me when you take things away from me and you make me feel bad, right? You hurt me. Okay. Love on level two is you love me when you affirm me, admire me, right? Um, confirm the things that I'm doing. And you don't love me if you put me down or you tell me that I'm wrong. Love level three and four are much different. Love three says, and this is how Father Spitzer puts it. I love the way he phrases this. True love is acting on the desire to do the good for the other, whereby doing the good for the other becomes just as easy, if not easier than doing the good for yourself. Mm. And on level four, true love is wanting and acting on the desire for the ultimate good of the other. Now watch how these definitions play out in euthanasia or assisted suicide, right? You're old, you have a terminal illness, you're debilitated. Quality of life. Your quality of life is diminished, right? On level one and two. Uh, Quality of life on level three and four could be much enhanced, by the way, in the the end of life. We can talk about that later. But um, your quality of life is low. You can't do the things you wanted. Your freedom of choice is limited now. And so I love you. 
and I want the good for you and you can't have the good anymore. So I will put you out of your misery and mm. help you kill yourself mm. versus this view. You're old, you're terminally ill. You can't do the things you used to love to do before. You're debilitated and all your choices are not there anymore. You don't have as many options on level one and two. So I'm going to be here for you for the long term, for as long as it takes. Number one, I will do the best I can to alleviate your level one and two sufferings. I will alleviate your pain where we can. Okay. And by the way, pain control palliative care today is very, very good. It's another wonderful dialogue to have with experts in palliative care. No one should be committing suicide because they are in, in, in un, you know, unbearable pain. It's just, that's malpractice. But I will help you solve those level one and two problems and help you do the things for yourself that you can do. So you have a sense of ego and pride and you know some accomplishment where you can but more important than that i love you so much that i want you to come out of that and move mm -hmm. beyond that i want you to see the goodness of god in the midst of your suffering and how he opens the door to a new interpretation of quality of life a different view of success views that show you that real meaning comes from your ability to impart wisdom to younger generations to give forgiveness to family members that you've had grudges against for years and years, to experience the compassion of others who come to serve you, to be generous mm. in your suffering and let other people come to you and take care of you in humbleness, yes, but without a fake humility that says, oh, I don't want to be a burden to you. But that's a fake humility. This is what love really does in level three and four. It says, I'm not going to abandon you to your level one and two belief about yourself. I'm not going to help you kill yourself because that would be abandoning you to a lie about who you are. I'm going to be here for you and make it against the law for people to abuse you in that way so that we can walk the walk next to you and help you live for something bigger and greater. And if you still want to kill yourself and you accomplish that, you're going to do it without my help. And I'm going to do everything I can to counter that, to show you who you really are. That's love. Preach it. Yeah, the it's kind of the opposite of accompaniment, right? It's 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 never the 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 insight for me is that you know people. I was talking to my business partner recently about this. People can be exploited even with their consent, oh, yes. right? The 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 idea that just because somebody's saying do this to me, you know, their their um, appeal to a sense of personal agency. Even it can be, if it can be done very intentionally, nevertheless, might not eliminate the fact that they're being exploited, abused, mistreated, abandoned, whatever the, you know, the term is. I was thinking about this just as you were talking. My father passed away in 2015 from terminal cancer. I was with him in the oncologist's office when he got his, basically his terminal diagnosis, right? And the, and the doctor who, I don't know if he was a believer, but he appealed on some level to God at that moment and said, look, it's not my job to tell people when and when and where they go, but looking at the science and looking at the data, you probably have, you know, three months if you do nothing, you probably got a year if you do chemo. And my father, and just, this is who he was, he actually said, well, I don't like either one of those options, so I'm not going to do either one. <laughs> and, and, and what he ended up doing was doing uh, this kind of homeopathic treatment. And he was with us for about 10 months. But oh, wow. I, I think about that experience of him at the very end of his life. And we had, you know, palliative uh, professionals. He, he died in our home. Um, palliative professionals. <clears throat> we had religious sisters who would come and spend the night praying with him and all this. But at the very, very, very end, I'm talking like two weeks out, the conversation really changed, and it struck me because you would have these healthcare workers, some of them from these palliative places, not all of them Christian, but just some of them from these different places that were, you know, at least 
on the surface supposed to be helping people, you know, helping him, helping him in dying, but not to die. Right. So we kind of understood that general principle. But even those folks, when we got to the very, very end, right, two weeks out, 10 days out, the conversation shifted a bit. And I started hearing things like, well, yeah, I guess we could hydrate him. But look, at the end of the day, by next Wednesday, really, he should, you know, and it, and it became this like super strong temptation that I felt was present. I don't, I don't, I didn't feel myself tempted, but I could see the temptation in that. It's like, well, we're so close. We're so close. It's almost over. So look, if you don't want to feed him, if you want to take the tube out, if you don't want to hydrate him, like that's okay because he's gone anyway. And what a powerful temptation that is to think like, well, we've done all this great stuff and it's going to happen tomorrow. So you may as well just stop. But, but, but we're, but we're, you know, we, we, we have a much higher standard, right? And that's the one that you've articulated, but it can be a very powerful temptation, even for people who do this all day. It is. And I know what you're saying. Um, and, and we do want to clarify that there is a, and you know this, but I know you know this, but there is a point at which, you know, food and water would become intolerable to the person and it's not providing any benefit to them. And in fact, it could be actually, you know, stopping them up or it sure. could be hurting them. And at that point, of mm-hmm. course, it's, it's mm-hmm. okay to withdraw food and nutrition, even if they might die a little sooner because they're weaker, because your point is that you're, you're always trying to bring that patient what's best for them physically, biologically, um, and as, as emotionally as well. So it's kind of a balancing act. You don't want to starve the patient to death. That would be wrong. Correct. But you also don't want to hasten their death by force feeding them, right? And then also their body correct. can't assimilate it and then they, you know, choke and die or they whatever. So they drown because of you're trying to force a liquid, you know, give them hydration. So you don't want to do that. But at the other hand, my, my mother had the same scenario where they wanted to unplug her after a stroke immediately um, because they didn't want to give her any time. She was uh, on a ventilation, you know, she, she was on a ventilator after she had a second massive stroke in the hospital and they just wanted to unhook her because what's the point now and we said well we're not going to unhook her from the ventilator until we see what her body wants to do i mean she may recover she may not but she's worth giving the opportunity to wait and see and what you said is so key there's an exploitation among the weak and the vulnerable because people don't want to take the time that it takes to see if somebody is naturally going to fight through it or maybe needs to just spend the time they need to spend spiritually with God or with their family a little more. Because that time is healing not just for my mom in the state she was in, but for me as well. And in her generosity, my mom would have wanted to suffer like that in order for me to grow in my love and in my compassion and my generosity towards her and to learn how to die well. Mm. So, you know, when after four days, and it was obvious at that point, her body was beginning at that point to shut down, we removed her from the ventilator. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that was hard to do and hard to watch, but it was the right thing to do. But there is this not so subtle burden that is put on people to die. You know, this is one of the principles we teach at Healing the Culture. It's called the principle of uh, duties uh, versus burdens or options versus duties which teaches that you cannot make a new option for some people, right? The new freedom or option to commit suicide and have someone help you, physician-assisted suicide. If it places an unjust or what we would call an undue burden to die on another whole group of people. Mm. And that exploitation is very real. Uh, It's very real with, with five particular groups. 
people who are disabled and already feel like they are a burden to society, right? These people are going to feel even more burdened to have to choose euthanasia when they are terminal. Number two, the elderly, because they are, they frequently suffer dementia, confusion. Uh, they don't want to hurt anybody. This is when their lives are coming to an end and they want to do as much good as they can. They get very confused. Uh, uh, the uninsured, people who don't have insurance hmm. and are being told by their insurance company, you know, we're not going to pay for your palliative care or experimental treatment anymore, but we'll pay for your suicide pill if you want it. You know, that is a subtle pressure, not so subtle pressure. Really. Or even people with uh, life insurance, I can imagine the whole notion of being worth more dead than alive. That's exactly right. Or people who are poor, who don't have the means to fight it, and people with malintended relatives, you know, and, and women particularly are vulnerable to this. Women don't want to be a burden, you know. My husband doesn't mind so much being a burden to me as I mind being to him. <laughs> and that's his gift. That's his gift, you know. It's a beautiful thing that he, he doesn't mind so much because he recognizes in his weakness is, is his strength and my strength. You know, I, somebody had this bumper sticker on the back of their car. I wish I could find it. I want to get it. It says, you know, God, let me live long enough to be a burden to my children. Wow. Because it's in those moments that we learn how to love and we learn who we really are and how we're made. But we want to exploit people and give them the sense that you're a burden. So the best thing you can do is just die. What, a, what an emptiness and what a lie for those Sup that we need the most. It's a, it can be super transformative, both for the person going through it as well for those that are around them. I, I, I can say honestly, because I'm no expert on end of life issues from a moral theological standpoint, but what I've learned broadly to, you know, two things Two I don't know if you'd call them insights. One of them from Father Joseph Fessio, the founder of Ignatius um, mm -hmm. Press, who, you know, kind of summed up all of end of life issues from a Catholic perspective as we help people in dying, we don't help people to die. That yes. was like a really cool encapsulation of the Catholic principle of end of life issues. And the other one is that all of these issues are imminently personal in the sense that situations and circumstances vary. So for instance, the idea of a ventilator or some kind of experimental drug protocol or some things, those could be extraordinary means of extending life where in that given circumstance in that particular scenario might be or, or they might be considered extraordinary in that particular scenario but in another one right down the block they might not be extraordinary right let's say a situation where somebody's got is a billionaire and like a, an economic hardship is not an issue so we have to look at these things you know in a very kind of personal way when we get to those kind of end of life moments there's one thing though camille that i want you to go back to and that's this because we just kind of glossed over it, but I, but I'm, I'm, and this is something you don't know, but this show is listened by, uh, but to a wide variety of people. I did a recent visualization of the podcast listening audience of this show, and what what we found was that there's a variety of nodes that listen to this show. People who are, you know, listening to other Catholic or Christian media, and then people who are listening to business media and all kinds of different things, probably because of my background, right? I've kind of developed this following. So not everybody who listens to this show has a, a you know, kind of a deep, you know, Catholic understanding. And one thing that you said, which was a good death, that phrase for a beautiful death, you know, that phrase is like a total cognitive disconnect for a lot of people <laughs> who hear it because death is something terrible and that we should avoid at all sure. costs. Talk right. about that concept. Sure. Well, that would be true if the death was, if your death was the end, right? Because then there's nothing else good that can come from you or that can come to you. And so the end would be the ultimate tragedy. 
Uh, but if you see that there's an ultimate goodness beyond yourself, that God really does exist, that there's a life after this one, and that it's inhabited by a God who wants to love you into all eternity and have you participate in that love, then death is not the end and death is not seen as this ultimate tragedy. And so you can actually have a good death. What is a good death? A good death is one in which two things happen. Number one, through my dying process, I have allowed goodness to come into the world to you by my witness, mm. by my humility, by my gentleness and forgiving, and also by allowing you to enter into that, right? To enter into my dying as I'm dying, not to force it and make it premature, but to enter into every phase and stage of my natural dying. So there's a goodness in that which makes it a good death. But the second thing that makes it a good death is that I can offer my entire death to Christ the way he offered it to God, the Father on the cross. And that can be my salvation, that when I give my entire life to God in my dying moments, that's when I'm truly letting go and letting him in and surrendering to his love. And that could mean eternity for me. That's what we mean by a good death, that in the dying process, I am imparting goodness to those around me as mm -hmm. much as I can. And that's why in the Catholic Church, we say you want to live your life as long as you can to its fullest. You want to protect your life. It has dignity and meaning in every moment, right? But also in the dying process, when you actually die, there's gift in that too, because I give my whole life to God in that moment. And that is also a good. And then I'm wrapped up into eternity in heaven. That, you know, and that's kind of, again, we're, we're talking about these concepts and, you know, in this very, you know, easy way, partly because you're, you're, you're so learned and you're, and you're so um, well-equipped to have the discussion. But even that principle, which I kind of view as the principle of self-donation, right? Of like giving mm. yourself entirely, modeled after Jesus's self-donation on the cross, giving himself up for our sins. That is like such an important paradigm upon which a lot of our worldview is based. And yet the notion of self-donation, of completely spilling yourself out for the other and ultimately for God is also something that let's just say doesn't roll off of the kind of philosophical you know tongue in today's yeah. in today's world does it yeah not a lot of excitement out there in the world for that self-donation idea and it may seem i'm glad you brought this up because it may seem to some of your listeners that we've been kind of chaotic you know and talking about love here and freedom there and euthanasia and sex and transgender and abortion you know what's tying all this together what's tying all this together is what is the worldview that we're choosing to live by and that we want to help others to live by? Is it level one, physical pleasure and possessions? Level two, ego gratification? Level three, gift of myself to the other? And or level four, which is surrender to the ultimate love and unconditional love of God. And here's the key. If you choose level one and two, self-donation doesn't make any sense. That's doesn't make the not cut. where you're going to find meaning. Yep. And it's going to change all those words, success, quality of life, love, freedom, what a human being is, what a human person is defined as, human rights, the common good, ethics, right and wrong, all those things change. And their definitions become very narrow, very restricted, and really, frankly, quite beneath us as human beings. Mm. We live like animals. 
But if you choose that level three and four identity, suddenly you have very different meanings of those words and abortion becomes unthinkable because abortion is the opposite of living the successful life. It is the opposite of a quality of life and it is choosing unfreedom over freedom. It's abandonment of the human person and it's a complete uh, uh, discard of human rights uh, and turning human rights on their heads. And people in level three and four recognize that and they realize that. And it affects not just how they view abortion, but how they view sex and gender and how they view you know, slavery and discrimination, how they view their responsibility to the environment, how they view the end of life, assisted suicide, uh, euthanasia, capital punishment. It affects the way we view all of these issues. Mm. But that's the key. You yeah. gotta make a choice. What is worthy of you? What are you gonna live for? And then when you choose it, and I hope it's level three and four for your sake as well as the cultures, be consistent to it. Adopt definitions of freedom and quality of life and success that are really worthy of you. Mm. Stop saying that an unborn child who's going to be born with a disability will never have a high quality of life and cannot be successful because of her disability. It's a lie. Mm. It is only true if you live for level one and two. But in level three and four, I know profoundly disabled children who have achieved level three and four because they are welcomed in a community. And Amen. don't be, don't underestimate the power of a child, even in a profound psychological disability who can't manifest to us any, any, you know, communication that they are understanding. Don't, don't underestimate their ability to enter into communion with you and know what love is and to be aware when they are being loved and when they are not, and to be aware of something trans, you know, transcendental, like the presence of God. And also bearing in mind that, you know, what people of goodwill, hopefully all people can agree on is the importance of community in our reality and the impact that a person who's severely disabled can have on the world. Yes, by virtue of their own gifts manifested in whatever way they manifest over time, but also the impact that they can have on others in the community. Yeah. I'm, remi I'm rem reminded of a case of a young woman here in Los Angeles. She was diagnosed, I'm gonna, I forget the illness that she had, but she, I think at age six, she was diagnosed with this, uh, this illness, which, which ultimately proved to be terminal, although it took something like 14 years for it to come to pass. But um, I used to bring communion to their home. This before I was ordained, but it was one of the ministries that I was active in. And um, this little girl at one point, just a normal little girl, and then suddenly started or stopped uh, speaking, then stopped walking and then basically was um, relegated to a uh, you know her bed basically for mm -hmm. the last many years of her life i think it was over 10 years that she literally just could not even get out of bed but i can tell you from me visiting that home not just the impact it had in my life but seeing the network of people that came together that organized that you know were were in uh, you know a thousand and one different projects, initiatives, things that were born out of this objective <laughs> suffering that would not have existed otherwise. And the great good that all of that did for all of those people, this, this little girl never even said a word, literally never spoke, yeah. you know, and yeah. yet the impact that it had. I, I think we forget that aspect too, when we think about what people can or can't do or their quality of life is like, well, yeah, but it's not just their life. It's your life and your neighbor's That's life right. and everybody else who's involved. And 
And it is her life as well, because she's an end in it of herself. And of I will course. guarantee you, I'll bet you a trillion dollars that if that little girl were able to tell you what she thought of her life, she would have told you it's pretty cool with all these people she, coming in here and helping me and loving me and making me feel like I am special and important and good in the midst of my suffering. She probably didn't even realize how much she was suffering because of all the good around her. And that, you know, that's... That's so important for people to remember that often when we're saying, I want euthanasia to be available so that, you know, you can be put out of your misery. What we're really secretly saying is, I want euthanasia to be available so that I can put you out of my misery. Mm. I don't want to have to take care of you. I don't want to have to do what people do when you get old, mom and dad. I don't want to have to take care of you or let you come live with me and, you know, maybe have to curtail the amount of work I do or vacations I go on or possessions I acquire. It's not about you. It's about me and what I'm willing Mm. to do. That's a tough one, but it's a very real thing. Just as you say it, absolutely. It's not put you out of, out, of, out of your misery. It's put me out of my misery of having to be responsible, involved, related to these this kind of tough decision-making. And again, that is a, a very powerful or can be a very powerful yeah, temptation. And I don't judge anybody, Deacon, because I stand at the front of the line. When my dad was getting old and feeble and the question started coming up, would we have to move him in with us? It wasn't a pleasant thought. <laughs> You know, I didn't want to do it, I admit. It's that's our level one, level two human nature that keeps coming up over and over again. It's going to be a burden. It's going to be difficult. He's grumpy. You know, my life is going to have to change. But we would have done it because we loved him. I didn't have to because he ended up dying, you know, unexpectedly early. Um, so, But I'm saying I, I put myself, I don't judge anybody for this, you know, for, for their attitudes and their actions because... I don't know what you're going through. And I know that when I was confronted with it, I felt the same way. This is, I don't want to do this, right? But Jesus didn't want to die on the cross either. He said, Lord, take this cup from me. Father, take this cup from me, right? But not my will, but thine be done. Your will be done. Right? Yeah. If there's any other way that we can accomplish the redemption of mankind, let's do it, is basically what he was saying. But your will be done, not mine. And he grasped the cross and held on to it and died on that cross because it was required. And that was just the gospel this last Sunday about judging lest we be judged. And I don't know, Camille, where you're going to be in the line, but I have a good good idea that you're going to be looking at the back of my head, whatever, <laughs> wherever you are in line in terms of like the <laughs> line, so. the line of sinners. Um, I'll, I'll definitely oh, be there. Pray me out of purgatory, please. <laughs> I, I, I know we've uh, I know we've talked about a lot of different things. And by the way, I don't think at all it sounds like it's um, you know not organized. I think all these things are very deeply, deeply related. But I do want to throw one more thing on the table before we learn a little bit more about healing the culture and get to our last segment. And that is, um, you talked about kind of classes of folks who tend to be in the most vulnerable classes, right? Elderly, et cetera. And you mentioned the poor. An area that I'm very active in is homeless ministry. And Mm -hmm. I recently read, and I don't know if this was a California stat, it may have been, you might know better, or if it was a nationwide stat, but it was something like maybe 18 or 19% of all women seeking out abortions are housing unstable or homeless themselves. And I, I, I was thinking about this, and I'll, I'll unspool this, but I'd love your, your thoughts on it. So uh, given what, what we've experienced, my wife and I doing homeless ministry for 20 plus years, is that we kind of view the homelessness situation now as reaching a bit of a crisis point, right? Where I kind of see it not to be sensational, but I almost see it as like the next pandemic, right? You've got these 
crazy stats, and not just in metropolitan areas, but kind of all over the world. And COVID has just accelerated it. Some of the forecasts call for something like 50% more homelessness um, in this year and in 2023. So there's just this huge explosion you know, of this. And the solutions, because people are thinking of it from a level one, level two perspective, often who are making this policy, a lot of the times it looks like they're trying to deal with homelessness as kind of like an oil spill, right? It's like something to just get be gotten rid of. And I've seen proposals recently that frankly are just like, just atrocious, right? There was a proposal I, I, I read about recently here coming out of Los Angeles that was talking about putting the homeless on trains and shipping them to abandoned military bases out in the desert. And oh, I'm thinking that's going to help. Uh, Well, I'm thinking to myself, has anybody cracked a history book? Like the last time we put people on trains, not a good look, not a good look. But but I'm also now envisioning the overlap of a lot of, in particular, women who are housing unstable or homeless and many of them seeking out that, um, you know, seeking out abortion as an option or not to be a burden on themselves or on society. And, and there's like, sadly, I think, like an increasing overlap between abortion and homelessness that we as Christians have to take seriously. I don't know if you have thoughts or a comment on that specifically, but there's yeah. interrelatedness in these things. Yeah, I there. well, the, I've never really given a lot of deep thought to this. It's, that's an issue I haven't spent a lot of time on, but I will tell you two insights that you've given me off the bat. And one of them is the the, the root of both of these is despair. Right when a woman chooses abortion, it's it's kind of like uh, I think it was Frederica Matthew Greens who says it's a woman choosing an abortion the way that an animal chooses to gnaw off its its yeah. arm when it's caught in a trap. There's mm. a despair there that I cannot find. You know, I can't do anything and I can't resolve this problem and I can't find happiness or peace or love or relationship unless I kill this baby. Mm. Most women, and I would say the vast majority of women, know this is a baby and a human being and her child, but they do it out of despair and fear. The same thing I think is going on with homelessness, right? People have some element of despair in their life and fear. And so they turn to drugs and alcohol or some other form of self-abuse and they end up on the streets. And here's the other problem. The other association I say is not just what's affecting the victim of these two things, the homeless person and the abortion minded woman, but it's also the problem is also an association between how we respond to both of those two. Oh, you, you have a despair, you're, you're fearful, this is not working, we'll just suck your baby out, kill it, and you'll be fine. And then just kind of brush it, you're like you're brushing it under the cover, go away and don't worry about it, you're fine now. We're doing the same thing with ho- homelessness, particularly, I'm appalled, I haven't heard of this example of training them out to you know, barracks of some abandoned military post, but what are we doing there? We're saying it's the same thing we do when we build this housing for the homeless. I'm not against building housing for the homeless. I think it's a great thing, but it's not solving their problem. It doesn't right? at the all. Problem, for most homeless people, their problem is not that they don't have a house to live in. Their problem is that they are despairing because either they can't get employment, their post-traumatic stress disorder from having been in, uh, in, in military combat, they're on drugs, they're addicted to alcohol, they have an endless cycle of poverty, their father abused them, they were raped, uh, they were trafficked, whatever it is, it's not because they don't have a house. They're on the streets because they are in despair. And that's what's not being distress, uh, addressed because the leadership of our culture doesn't know how to address those issues. And why not? Because they themselves don't have access to happiness levels three and four. Mm. They aren't living for those things. Their solutions all come out of level one and two. I'll build you a house. I'll get rid of your child. I'll get rid of what's causing you pain, physical burden. That's going to solve your problem. 
So many of our leaders have zero access to those higher levels of meaning and purpose because they're not listening to the message that you're trying to proclaim. And that's why your, by the way, your podcast is so important. And I hope that this show goes viral because this is the message that our leaders need to hear. Those who are wounded under your jurisdiction, under your watch, need your level three and four solutions, not just your level one and two solutions, or you're doing no good for anybody. 79% of women who are homeless were sexually abused as children. Yep. Yep. And that that does lead to one of the insights that I've had in this work is that homelessness is not really something to be solved. It's something to be healed. And the orientation around the homelessness dialogue, especially when there's, you know, municipalities or government actors that are brought to bear is usually around exactly what you said, which is like, what are the tools and resources that these people need so we can get this issue under control? What they don't think about, which has definitely happened and very, very sad, is the number of people who take their own lives once they're housed in those situations. Here in Los yeah. Angeles, it happens all the time. In fact, our sheriff was just talking about it very recently. Some people that were, you know, because we have these big events like the Super Bowl and the Olympics and people come in and they literally sweep folks off the street and shove them into places and get them out of the way. A lot of those people end up taking their lives. Why? Because the underlying trauma that can only be solved through relationship, through accompaniment, through healing is not dealt with. Now what I've got is really a place, uh, you know, the walls start closing in, frankly. It's actually maybe even worse that if, I'm, if I'm just thrown into a tiny home or into something without the benefit of that relationship, of that accompaniment, of that real care, because that's what's being sought after. Sure, we all need shelter. We all need food. We all need drink obviously, but that's not the root of what the issue actually is. No, you're making it worse because now I'm boxed in with four walls around me to stare at the walls and really go deep in my despair thinking about the problems that led me here in the first place. 100%. I mean, so it's all, you're right. It's all about healing. It's all about healing the person and healing the culture. And we do have resources too. I I know we're hitting up against an hour here, but, but we do have resources that your listeners can go to if they want help in learning more about this themselves or helping to educate others. We've created resources and and programs for them. Mm-hmm. Definitely talk about that, healing the culture. Sure. Talk about some of the work, like the newer things too, in particular, which you shared with me earlier that I think are fascinating, your approaches to you know, youth education on these subjects, the modalities that you guys have employed to actually communicate some of this, you know, admittedly, you know, more philosophical, headier terms into a context that can actually be understood by younger people. But talk to us when about Father, healing yeah. the culture. Yeah. When Father, Spitzer, when Father Spitzer first created this program, he created it on a college level because it kind of lends itself because of its fe- philosophical depth to a a college and post-college audience. And so he's written two college level books, Healing the Culture and 10 Universal Principles, which people can get on our website, healingtheculture.com. So that would be good for a a college and an adult audience. We've taken the concepts in those books, his four levels of happiness, all those terms, we call them the 10 categories, right? Love, success, quality of life, freedom, personhood, et cetera. Um, And then what he calls 10 universal principles, principles of logic, ethics and justice. And we've created a website where people can get little five minute videos. It's called respectlife.university. You can access that through healingtheculture.com as well. And it's a bunch of videos that talk about the 
practical issues and how to apply these principles to those to answering those practical issues. What about rape and incest? What about when a woman is pregnant with a baby who's disabled? What about terminal illness? Uh, what about overpopulation? You know, what about uh, uh, you know all these all these other issues? So so we take them and we digest them down in these little five minute videos to help. There's some animation, um, but that's good for a college and an adult audience. And high school, we have some animated videos uh, on that same website, which you uh, respect life. University, which you can access through healingtheculture.com, that brings it even lower to a, a level of a high school audience. We have a program called Principles and Choices, which is a high school curriculum that brings all this teaching to their level. There's a play we wrote called Robert and Emma, which is an amazing drama written for high school students that takes you through all of those levels of happiness and all those principles in kind of a clever way with a love interest and, you know, somebody dies in there and, you know, you, you kind of get to see all this playing out, all the pro-life issues playing out. Um, and then we have a game for young people called Life uh, in a Flash. It's a flashcard game where they can learn these principles and those four levels through flashcard games in a, in a small group or over a family dinner table. And then, you're right, I'm excited about the most recent program we have, which is for little kids. Um, I was talking with the superintendent of public instruction for the diocese, the Archdiocese of Seattle, some years ago, and he said, what do you have for little kids? And I was like, well, what do you mean little kids? We did high school. And he was like, well, I mean, like, kindergarten. And I was like, you want me to do Spitzer for kindergartners? Are you kidding? <laughs> but he said, yeah. So we researched it for about five years, and we came up with a phenomenal program. It's called Philo and Sophie. Philo, Sophie, philosophy, Philo and Sophie, philosophy for kids. And it's uh, for kindergarten, first and second graders, although we've used it on third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders too, and they love it. And it's Sesame Street style videos where you've got Philo, a puppet, he's a penguin with a British accent, and Sophie the mermaid, who's a goofy little innocent mermaid, and uh, they're ex their adventures together, going through these levels of happiness and some of these principles and teaching little kindergartners the principle of non-contradiction, for example, and the true meaning of success. And then we, we end all of the, the units with an episode that applies it to the pro-life issue, to the unborn child, or, or defeating one of the dumb arguments, like it's a baby if you want it to be and not if you don't. But we do it in clever, creative ways that don't even bring up abortion or euthanasia at all. We don't want to scar their innocence at that young age. And so we, we defeat these arguments that the pro-choice movement is making with these higher level philosophical principles for little kids in ways they understand through, through animation and puppetry and actor intervention. And, uh, you know, even through clever songs, like we have a song called the Contra contradiction fiction and, uh, and they remember this, they can apply it. They love it. Their teachers love it. And it's all free. So mm. people can get Philo and Sophie on our website, healingtheculture.com. And, uh, you can do it in the classroom. You can do it at home with your kids. It's, it's just fun little video episodes. We'll include all of the information in the show notes for this episode so people can avail themselves of all of these different resources and learn more about healing the culture and learn more about you. Uh, Camille, what a great privilege to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, you're welcome back anytime. Clearly, we could, we could uh, you know, uh, spin some yarns here in a couple different directions. So um, no doubt there's a lot to talk about. And, and for my part, I'm very happy that you're out there leading with such 
such zeal and clarity and also with so much uh, orientation to love and accompaniment, because I think that that's really important with all of these issues is to remember our brothers and sisters are just that and, and never to forget that. Um, you know, despite the fact that we might have very, very solid argumentation that's sort of irrefutable, but never forgetting that we're dealing with people. And that comes clear in, in, uh, in this conversation. So, you know, my prayers and, and by extension, those who listen to this show for prosperity to all the work that you're doing. Thank you. We need your prayers very much and uh, prayers for the success of your podcast as well, Deacon. Amen. So, Camille, are you ready then to play Wait What? Yes. Okay. I'm ready for that. I forgot you were going to do this to me. <laughs> okay. Here, here goes. We'll do this. We'll do this quickly. So we'll start nice and easy, Camille, because those who know okay. you, those who know you are aware of an anecdote that you often share about the time that you met Gregory Peck, the famous actor from the golden age of Hollywood, known for his many roles in classic films like To Kill a Mockingbird and Roman Holiday. And my personal favorite, which is Cape Fear, in which he played the lead role in the original. And then 30 years later, he actually played a supporting role. So with that in mind, Camille, which of these is false about the late, great Gregory Peck? Which is false about him? Ready? Is it A, curiously, he offered to be an unpaid spokesperson for Chrysler in 1980? Is it B, as president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Peck postponed the Oscars after the assassination of MLK? Or is it C, Early on in his career, he supported himself as a Central Park tour guide and as a catalog model for JCPenney. Which of those is <laughs> false, Camille? I have absolutely no idea, but having met him, I'm going to go with C. <laughs> and you know what, Camille? You would be correct. He oh, act good. It is. It is C. Um, now, interestingly, you're correct, but I, I always play a little bit of a trick on these questions, but you're correct maybe for reasons you're, you're not aware of. So during his lean kind of salad days, he actually did support himself as a tour guide, but it was a tour guide in Radio City Music Hall. And he did actually model, but it was from Montgomery Ward. So no the, speci kidding. the specifics were off, but you're nevertheless correct. So great job. Oh, you're good. starting off in a... Uh, good in, enough. In, in very good fashion. All right, Camille, we're going to we're going to move to a fill in the blank question, okay? And this one has okay. both scriptural and perhaps a pro-life theme. So here goes. In the book of Job, there is a passage which has encouraged many and no doubt has additional meaning to those Christians involved in the pro-life movement. So it's Job chapter 10 and it reads this. You're going to fill in the blank. It reads, "You clothe me with skin and flesh, and blank me together with bones and sinew. You clothe me with skin and flesh and blank me together with bones and sinew. What is the blank? What is the word we're looking for? Oh, you're not going to give me multiple choice, Deacon? No. <laughs> is but it, you can guess. Well, it, yeah, well, bind. Very close. Very close. Mm. Actually, another four-letter word, but the word in, in English is knit. Knit, okay. You knit me together with bones and sinew. And I always love that kind of, uh, you know, uh, image of kind of knitting, of creating something great and taking, you know, very special care, which, of course, our Heavenly Father well, does when yes, he's talking and, to us. And we also read elsewhere that you knit me together in my mother's womb, which is very dear to pro-lifers as well. I Correct. didn't choose that one because I'd, I didn't want to be repetitive. <laughs> well, nevertheless, you get partial credit for that one, Camille. I'm feeling very generous right. in my mood today. Okay, last question. And Camille, there's always a time machine question. Okay, so here you go. You have a chance to travel forward in time to Vatican City in the year 2222, exactly two centuries into the future. 
And by the way, that's a palindrome, right? So a number that reads the same way, forward and backward. That's right. Okay. Now there's much technology that you witness. So electrification has made any vehicles that you come across completely silent. And in the air, you hear all the distant wisps of pilotless drones ferrying every kind of manner of items to various locations throughout the city. You've got neural networking, which has allowed instant comprehension of other languages. So there's no need for translations or tour guides or anything like that. Okay. And any of the busyness that you expected in Rome that you remember is now completely cleared of traffic because pedestrians simply use the backpack drones that they have or underground tunnels to move from place to place. Okay. Nevertheless, you forgo flying or tunneling and you decide to walk to St. Peter's Cathedral. It's Wednesday. And when you arrive, the Holy Father is about to give his Wednesday audience. All right. You push through throngs of pilgrims all waiting to get a glimpse of the Pope as he enters the square. When you finally see him, you instantly notice something unusual about the successor of Peter. And you're surprised that no one else seems surprised by what you see. What, Camille, do you notice? <laughs> Obviously, there's no right answer here, Camille. So I'm leaving it to your imagination. Oh, gosh, I'm still trying to catch up. What do I notice about him that nobody else notices that is bizarre? Yeah. Is that what you said? That, or that's very different. You're not unexpected. That's very different. 200 years into the future. Oh, my gosh. Um, <sighs> I have absolutely no idea how to answer this. I'm going to have to say that he has a, uh, you know, he has a propeller on his beanie. <laughs> okay. And it works. And he's actually able to fly from place and to place. He, and he flies from place to place. Very good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, you know, you could, it, there, there could, there's a thousand and one potential right answers. I know, but, but anyway, you just I caught like me put, up with this thing about being able to transport ourselves with all of our jetpacks and things. So there you well, go. He ought to have go. a way to transport too. That's why it. That's why the guest always gets question three right. Because whatever you say <laughs> is uh, is the right answer. <laughs> Awesome. Camille, thanks again for being on the show. Great privilege to have you. And uh, and again, great prosperity in all the work that you're doing. And, Thank you, Deacon. And if you're listening to our voices, that means that you should subscribe right now, not later, not tomorrow. Subscribe to this show. Share this show. This particular episode, by the way, with those who you think can benefit and grow from having listened to the conversation that Camille and I have engaged in. And we'll be very privileged to see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform, or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you, and thank you for listening.